You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad. Because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts, or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. That's chime.com slash goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA, members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch. My name is Sue Rocco, and it's great to be here with all of you. Some of you may have been with us in the five o'clock hour for a special we did on Japaigo and its CEO, Leslie Mancuso. Um, what an incredible organization they are helping women and families have access to better health care all over the world. I was so honored to have the opportunity to share Leslie's story and, and learn how they're handling the global pandemic. So if you missed it, we will be posting it um, on our podcast tomorrow. Joining me in just a moment will be Les, excuse me, Lisa, Lisa Matame the founder of Sahajan, which is an evidence-based natural skincare line. And Lisa is joining us from Canada this evening and has a very interesting and successful entrepreneurial journey. So I'm looking forward to sharing her story. 
If you're new to the show, be sure to stay with us during the breaks where you'll hear from our watch team of on-air contributors bringing you news and inspiration from their industries in healthcare, finance, legal matters, military affairs, technology, marketing, and the nonprofit sector. And by the way, if you're listening and you are a leader at your company and you'd like to be a part of the show, you can learn more by visiting us at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And don't forget to download the podcast and sign up for our newsletter uh, by visiting Women to Watch as well. So now I'm very excited and, and honored to welcome to the show Lisa Matame. Lisa, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Is it Madam or, or Matame? Matame. It's Matam. It's Matam. Matam. Yeah, Matam. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Good. Thank, went, thank you for having yeah, me. Just, oh, I'm happy to have you. Um, excited to learn more about your company and and really, you know, how you managed to um, start this company in an area that I think is really um, very, very prominent right now, everything having to do with um, natural products and and botanical products. and But I really want to start off on learning a little bit more about your background. And I understand that while your parents were from India, um, you're actually from Canada. And we had a conversation a couple of months ago about the fact that perhaps your parents had different ideas for you um, about what you should be when you grow up. Talk to our listeners a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully my parents won't be listening, but uh, no, that's okay. <laughs> but uh, so first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation. And it's interesting that we ended up speaking about this um, on, on when we chatted a couple months ago, but it is, you know, when you think about the journey, I, I, I don't think when I was young, I had any plans or intentions or visions of being an entrepreneur. But to your point, my parents didn't either. I think, you know, my parents are from India. Um, you know, their journey here, my parents were both educated. My father in, particularly, in particular had to, you know, when he came to Canada, you know, recertify and he had to go back to university. And, and so they really, you know, they came here to create a certain life for us. And, and I think, you know, as I start to spend more time thinking about what that means is I think for them, you know, they came here to create what they perceived would be a better life. They wanted, they wanted stability. They wanted success. Probably, you know, most people have encountered at least one Indian doctor in their lifetime. And I think that's every Indian parent's goal or dream come true at some point that at least one of their kids becomes a doctor and that was certainly the case for me you know my parents uh, very much sort of nurtured a strong sense of academics in our in our house a strong sense of achievement and but there was very much like you know a very uh, tight idea of this is what success looks like so I think you know as we or particularly as I started to, to grow up with my parents that was what they saw and so it was it was a big leap for them I'm very close with them still and even though now I'm in my 40s, it's amazing that even making the decision 
to become an entrepreneur, I had some nervous feeling about telling them because I knew it would be taking me so far away from what they had envisioned for me and that it would cause them some distress. So that's, I think that's what you and I talked about, but it is, I think yeah. when you start to think about journeys and particularly for, I think if, if you have uh, families or, or children of, of, you know, first generation Americans or first generation Canadians, it is, it is something that you sort of struggle with because your parents crave this stability, this vision I think in some ways feeling like their sacrifice was for something they could understand so to go against that mm. is a bit hard yeah yeah and you know as parents we always have um, I think it's human nature to have a vision of of where our children will go in life and really the key is to let them explore and figure it out on their own Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. I, you know, I, I've said to my husband, I can see where my parents are coming from. If, you know, 20 years from now, my daughter came to me and said, you know, I've got this really great idea. I want to create a line of socks. I think I too would want to <laughs> hide under the covers <laughs> and say, but why? <laughs> yeah, well, you, we worry for them. But yes. um, at the end of the day, right, if, if we're mm -hmm. following what we're um, drawn to, mm -hmm. it, it typically leads to success. Mm -hmm. your, your mother was a nurse mm -hmm. and you described her as being quite humble. Mm -hmm. Tell me, tell me about your relationship with her. Oh, my mother, she's, she's lovely. Um, but it's, it's, um, you know, my, I was raised by parents who were, who were very different. So my dad is boisterous and extroverted and a get things done kind of personality. And as you know, when you had asked me questions about my parents, my mom is, is quieter and more humble, but, you know, incredibly bright. And I think, I think it's just in her nature not to, not to necessarily, I don't know what the right way to say it is. I, I don't know that she would necessarily come out and, and say, you know, this is who I am or this is how I shine or hear all the things about mm. me you don't know. So it was interesting for me yeah. because I always knew that she worked and she was the primary income earner in our house. And, you know, she worked very hard. And, and that was obviously such a, uh, a special thing for me to, to see as a child growing up. But it was only when I was an adult that I really started to come to know some of these other things about her. So I remember, you know, helping her we were doing some, I don't know, redecorating or cleaning some stuff in her, reorganizing in, in my parents' bedroom. And I came across a, an envelope and it had, uh, it was from, you know, the late 1960s. And it was, my mom would have been, again, a new immigrant to Canada from, she came to Canada via Chicago, but, you know, from India mostly. And uh, it was her nursing score. And she, I think, was like the top, had the top score in Ontario, which is like having this top score in your state. Wow. Yeah. And wow. she never told me that. And I, I and so there's something really special to knowing that, but also knowing that she and all of these years never felt the need to share that with me. And mm. I think it's part of, she's just a quieter individual, but also she, I think it also comes from an assured sense of self that I don't need to always walk around waving the flag of, you know, we're, we're sort of taught in a North American way to be boisterous and to self-promote and all of those things. And it's interesting to see the opposite in someone who's obviously um, so bright and so successful. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because, you know, a lot of the topics on our show is about women and girls finding their voice. Mm -hmm. But I think you're so right. There's there's a there's a balance, I think, between saying, look at me, look at me. Um, and also just having the confidence to be um, to know that what we're doing is right and not needing to 
Mm-hmm. As you said, wave the flag. Mm-hmm. I like how you describe that. Mm-hmm. I think there's something that you start to learn over time. I mean, I, I am as a business owner and, and to your point, even in finding my own voice and and when I if I spend time sort of mentoring or, or coaching other entrepreneurs or other women coming up in business, you know, I do believe we do have to self-promote. Uh, don't get me wrong. But I think there's um, an element that you start to realize as you get older that you can look for validation in other people, but ultimately the validation you need from, is from yourself. And I think that's what my mother taught me is that yes. she didn't, she doesn't need for, you know, other people to say, oh, look how great you are. She, I think in her heart must know, must know that because she just, she just never sought that. Whereas I think mm. it's in our nature to constantly, to want to be validated outside of ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so you went off to school and, and you received um, honors in a Bachelor of Science and an MBA mm-hmm. um, and a diploma in European business. Tell me what your aspirations were at that time prior to what we'll talk about later, the light bulb moment for mm-hmm. Sahajin. I think it was an evolution, to be honest. Like my parents had a pretty, you know, they were really partners <laughs> or they had a really strong hold on my education. So I initially went into science because, you know, I, I did, I did relatively well in school and I thought, okay, maybe I could become a doctor. I remember saying to them, fine, I'll become a doctor, but I'm not going to be a doctor for very long. <laughs> I'm going to become the CEO of the hospital. I remember saying that to them. Wow. And, wow. Um, not even knowing what that meant, but knowing that that seemed right. Uh, I don't even think I understood what the CEO job was. And so I did the science degree and I finally, you know, mustered up the courage to say, I know that this isn't the right path for me. And so I then went and got a master's and I thought actually a lot about, uh, you know, doing health management. And so I did a short uh, stint in a hospital and then I went on to go into pharmaceuticals. And that was really the area of great passion. And to your point about while I was doing my master's, I did an exchange to France and and got that graduate diploma. So it really, Mm. I think that... I mean, the graduate diploma changed my perspective in my life so much just because it was the first time I had really lived abroad. But also, I think going into the business world, things just started to feel right. It was like I was working in an area that made sense to me. You know, it, it, maybe you know, maybe you could say it was I wasn't. But it, you know, the, the the classes made sense to me. The concepts made sense to me. Um, and I could really, and I really envisioned myself staying in pharmaceuticals for a very, very long time. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Lisa Mateum, founder of Sahajan, an evidence-based natural skincare line uh, based in Canada. And I wanted to ask you, Lisa, about your connection to India mm-hmm. while you are born and raised in Canada. There's something that kind of makes you feel connected to it. What, what is that? Can you describe it? Oh my gosh, that's so hard to describe in a sentence, I think. I think the best way to just to, to describe it is, you know, I think when you're, and, and again, many of your listeners may relate to this, I think if you have grandparents or your parents are from another country or, you, you know, you know that your heritage starts somewhere else, I think you live this beautiful existence where in some ways you have one foot in one country or one culture and another foot in the other. And I think, you know, while I realized when I studied abroad that I think I'm Canadian first because those are the rules of my life and that's the way I kind of govern myself, there is a another set of value systems that pops in that's from the Indian culture, whether it's my value system around family or uh, certain ways that I carry myself. And I think that 
I think that connectedness has has made my life very special. But I think it's also, um, you know, even when I think of when we when we talk about when I start to, when I started the business, it's there's always this pull that I have to many things that are from India because they feel intuitively right, and that my parents may not have used those words my whole, you know, they might not have said it because you're Indian or because we're Indian, but there are things that they seamlessly wove into my life, whether it's through the food or the culture or the dinners or the people we spent time with that really um, that really created this beautiful belonging uh, with me in the Indian culture uh, in the same way I do with the Canadian culture. Well, you know, when we come back, we're going to go into our first break. I'd love to talk about that a little bit. There's certainly a sense of uh, and a focus on wellness, I would say, that comes out of India. And a lot of those um, things go back many, many years. So stay with us for our watch team and we will be back with Lisa Mateum. Now, the women to watch. Marketing Watch. Hi, everyone. I'm Lynn Falconio, Chief Marketing Officer of Publicis Health for Women to Watch Marketing Watch. The pandemic has challenged each of us in new, unexpected, and often personal ways. In my professional life, I've seen how the pandemic has impacted the larger marketing ecosystem. But in addition to my front row seat professionally, Like everyone, COVID-19 has impacted my life beyond work. My husband has owned a restaurant in the heart of Midtown Manhattan for 25 years and from March to August was forced to shutter his doors for the very first time. According to a report from ABC News, the pandemic threatens to permanently close almost 85% of independent restaurants nationwide, putting 16 million jobs at risk. Though independent restaurants are hardest hit, large chains have had to make their pivots too in order to sustain some type of revenue during these times. For example, Chick-fil-A swiftly adapted to new consumer demand, offering new mobile and contactless options. This quick response helped them leap over Burger King and Wendy's to land in third place on the list of top 50 chains, according to Forbes. For better or for worse, the restaurant model, and the way we consume food is changing radically. For large chains, loyalty programs, as well as meal kits, delivery, and contactless drive-through can make up some of the revenue, but for small businesses, the task is ever more daunting. The sharing of food is an expression of love, community, and friendship. And in our life under the curve world, we aren't eating together in the same ways as before, and a big part of that expression is lost. As we look toward the future, I encourage all of us to remember what it feels like when the local barista remembers how you like your coffee, that bartender who pours your drink just right, and the warmth you experience walking into your favorite neighborhood cafe. If we want our local restaurants to survive post-pandemic, let's commit to doing our part by shopping small and eating local. Until next time, I'm Lynn Falconio for Marketing Watch. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. Now the women to watch. Finance Watch. Hi, this is Terry, and I'm from Fortis Wealth. 
October is National Estate Planning Awareness Month, an educational campaign intended to focus attention on the importance of having a plan to care for family members and to manage assets as we age and after our death. Estate planning is an often overlooked element of financial wellness. The National Association of Estate Planners and Councils estimates that over half of Americans don't have an up-to-date estate plan. Estate planning is crucial for people of any age or income status. Parents with young children need to have a plan in place in the event of an unexpected death or disability. For everyone else, estate plans should be created to address asset protection, financial management of assets, wealth distribution, tax planning issues, and health care decisions in the event of cognitive decline or disability prior to death. Without a will or trust in place, important decisions about the care of young children and the distribution of property at death will be made by a judge, often following a contested and sometimes expensive legal proceeding. So this is a great time for everyone to implement or review their estate plans and financial health. If there's none in place, now's the time to get started. The first step is to decide how family responsibilities and property will be managed in the event of disability or death. Then inventory all the assets and how they're owned. Also identify any beneficiaries. Next, develop a strategy, ideally with the assistance of a financial or estate planning professional, for managing and distributing the the estate. Documents should include a will, possibly a trust, a durable power of attorney, and health care directives. Life circumstances change, as do taxes and estate laws. It's good practice to review your estate plans annually or as your circumstances change. With sound estate planning, individuals and their families can maintain financial security during their lifetimes and ensure the efficient, intended transfer of assets following death. If your estate plan is not up to date, please make it a priority so that your family is protected. This is Terry. Peace out. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. I'm speaking with Lisa Mateum this evening, the founder of Sahajin, which is, again, um, a natural skincare line. And uh, Lisa is joining us from Canada. Uh, Lisa, I wanted to talk to you about the word Ayurveda, which is a beautiful word. And I understand it means the science of life, Mm -hmm. uh, which originated in India more than 5,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me a little bit more about it and how this is used in conjunction with Sahajin. Yes. So Ayurveda, as you mentioned, uh, literally means the science of life. That's the translation from Sanskrit. And so a lot of people are very familiar with yoga. And yoga is the sister practice of Ayurveda. And Ayurveda uh, traditionally is the um, science of wellness that has been used in India for 5,000 years. It's the science that the royals of India would have used to to live longer and to look beautiful. Um, it's, it's this beautiful, beautiful science that in its base understanding really, uh, it, its foundation is, is that we need to be in balance. And when we're out of mm. balance, we get sick. And so the mm. whole concept of Ayurveda lies in this idea that one, we can proactively contribute to our wellness. And so by the foods that we eat, but also the other things that we consume, whether it be television or all of those things that we can live a certain life, but also 
uh, by our daily routines and the things that we do and how we balance some of our natural tendencies. And so that's one tenant is we can help to proactively manage our, skin, uh, our health. And, and then quite the opposite is when we get sick, we look to Ayurveda to help us, you know, for natural ways to feel better. And what I love about Ayurveda and the way that it's practiced in India is that, you know, still 80% of Indians go see Ayurvedic doctors. And that's a big population seeing Ayurvedic doctors. Yes. But yes. what, what I love about it is the belief is not that it is in opposition to what we would consider to be you know, medicine. It wouldn't be in opposition to, to what I'll call Western medicine. And actually mm -hmm. there are hospitals in India where when you're at the hospital, you will see both. You'll see an Ayurvedic doctor and you'll see your medical doctor because there's an understanding that they both play very significant roles. I actually, I have an Ayurvedic practitioner who's based in New York and she works out of uh, uh, this beautiful, beautiful medical center called The Well. And The Well is run by a medical doctor, but who very much believes that you can integrate these different, I guess, modalities, if you will, or these different sciences in a way that really serves our wellness. And so if you've mm. ever, you know, put turmeric and had a turmeric latte at a really, you know, cool, hip coffee place, or if you've ever, you know, had lemon water in the morning, those are all actually ancient rituals from Ayurveda. And what Ayurveda offers us is also these beautiful, beautiful rituals for your skin and your hair. And again, what I love about them is that they're time tested, obviously over 5,000 years and they're high performing. And so, you know, I wanted to bring these ingredients, put the rigor of my years in pharma in them and, uh, and really bring them to the beauty world. Cause I think you can get the best results with, you know, if you're someone who wants to minimize the toxins in your life or you're trying to go clean or you're somewhere along a wellness journey, um, you know, we can give you your best skincare without having to necessarily add in some ingredients or toxins or chemicals, whatever word you want to use that you, that you may be trying to stay away from. Mm. You know, when I think about the, the skincare industry and, and I, I really think that, you know, clean beauty, clean products, clean mm -hmm. food is definitely the way of the future. And I guess I'm surprised that chemicals were ever to begin with placed into products that we put on our skin. You know, what do you know about that? The reasoning behind it, is it all about the preservatives, the, the mm -hmm. you know, enabling these products to, to remain uh, for long periods of time effective? Mm -hmm. I think it's a few things. I think one, um, and, and this is my opinion because I actually haven't, I couldn't speak to this specifically from the industry, but if I if I think about it, I think there's a few things. One is much like we, you know, I, I can remember, so for example, I breastfed my kids. My mom gave us formula and she had said at the time there was this belief system that formula was better, that it was this, you know, man-made, beautiful drink made for, and I, I shouldn't, I said man-made, maybe human-made would have been a better word, um, you know, drink <laughs> that was, you know, made and it was ideal for infants. And so I think we as a society moved to this place where you know, we moved away from sort of what was nature and what was natural. And I mm -hmm. think we, you know, just like how, you know, and we believed in our scientific evolution so strongly that we moved away from some of what nature offers us. And then I also think to your point, in moving towards, and I don't think, first of all, everything is a chemical, but I also don't think all ingredients are bad. But I think to make things faster, to make them stay longer, to make them less expensive, I think, uh, to to drive better profits whatever it is i think you can you can do a lot more 
with um, synthetic ingredients to a certain extent than you can with natural ones. So we do use a preservative in some of our uh, products because I believe there's nothing worse for you than a poorly preserved product. But it does cost more because we use one that's, you know, approved by the Environmental Working Group and is EcoCert and all of these things. And so there is, I think, a, a greater uh, burden, at least initially, that's taken on by clean skincare brands in order to formulate that way. But I also think that they, I think we just got to this place. It's like, you know, it's almost like asking, like, how do we get to this place where cheesies are something that we love so much? Because they I don't even they look like plastic orange things. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we right. did because they tasted right. good. And so I yes. think it's the same way. I think I think it's just we moved from this great evolution. And there's parts of that that are so wonderful. But I think, you know, my belief is we need to also go back to what we intuitively believe. Like when you mm. sit in your heart, like I, I'm not perfect. I do not eat the most perfect diet. You know, we just had Canadian Thanksgiving. I would be lying if I didn't tell you, like I sat with a piece of baklava from our local great bakery <laughs> and ate it with such pleasure. But yes, if you ask as me, you should. as you should, but if you ask me intuitively, like, do I think it's better for me to have had, you know, something healthier for sure. And broccoli. I, yeah, broccoli, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Um, but I think, and good thing Ayurveda is all about balance, so I think you're allowed to explain. Right. <laughs> but I think, I think we've gone away from, from doing, from looking into our intuition and saying what feels right, what seems right, yeah. what should I actually yes. be putting, whether it's in my body or on my body. We, we moved away from that for a really long time. Yeah, I, I think that speaks to the intuition uh, piece of ourselves that we always should be trying mm-hmm. to, to connect back to, mm-hmm. right? I think inevitably we, we do have the answers. We're just so distracted mm-hmm. by outside forces. We're mm-hmm. not hearing that into intuitive voice. Right. I think that's it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I have a quote. You said, I want to give our customers the science to tap into their own intuition around using clean products. Mm-hmm. How would you describe that? Helping people tap into their own uh, intuition. So what I, I meant when I, when I said that, so Sahajan, which is the name of our brand, comes from the word Sahaja, which means intuitive. So when I when I created this brand, when I was inspired to do it, it was really going back to what intuitively seemed true to me. You know, I, I could recognize whether it's in the ingredients or in the processes or in going clean that it, it, it felt right. But my feeling was it had taken me kind of a long time to get there in the grand scheme of things. You know, I grew up in a house where my dad was actually, you know, people are doing yoga and meditating and stuff in their houses now. And it's, you know, you can go to Barnes and Noble and buy a meditation book like the second you walk in. But when I was a kid, it wasn't so mainstream. And so I grew up in a house where I would go down the stairs and my dad would be meditating. I remember having a sleepover and saying like, could you just be like a normal dad and make pancakes and like not do your <laughs> weird stuff? So I grew up with that. But And as I got into adulthood and as I was in my corporate life, I was making efforts to be healthier. I was trying to eat healthier food. I went to see a naturopath. I was, I got back into a yoga practice, but it took me a really long time to get there with my skincare. I had, I wasn't, I had, there was obviously such a disconnect between Mm. what I was putting in my body versus what I was putting on my skin. And so I thought, you know, in my head, I was like, if I'm any indication of what other people are doing, we buy skincare because we want it to work. Right? Like, I buy skincare because I have two kids, I run a business, it's COVID, I look tired all the time. <laughs> so, I buy skincare because I want to 
feel better, I want to look more rested, I want my skin to look like it's glowing, and I buy skincare for results first. And I think that's mm. what we do, intuitive, again, intuitively, I think that's what we do. And so I thought, I don't just want to tell people like, hey, this is really good for you, hey, this is really good for you, hey, this is really good for you. What I want to tell people is, hey, here's some good news, hey, it's really good for you and it works. And so I thought I have to do it in the way that I know how. And I believe that Ayurveda offers us the, this sort of gateway to beauty and wellness through the recipes. But I mm -hmm. also, um, you know, having grown up in North America, having worked in the pharma industry, I worked for J&J &J for a long time. You know, I wanted to put the rigor that I had learned through that career and apply it. So yes, we work with two Ayurvedic doctors in India on the formulations, but they're all made with pharmaceutical chemists here. Uh, in Toronto, uh, we do regulatory approval on everything. Our two sort of core hero products have clinical tests on them, which is very unique in the clean beauty world. It's something that you see, you know, on QVC, or it's something that you see when you walk into a department store and you see these sort of beauty giants that have, you know, 72% of people do this or 80% of people did this. You know, we did that with our two core products because I wanted to be able to. I knew confidently that the products would work and I know the ingredients, but I wanted people to be able to say, you know, here's proof positive. So you don't have to worry. You're not just buying this because it's good for you. You're buying this because you're going to get the results that you want. And hey, good news, it's good for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Lisa Mateum, the founder of Sahajan, uh, this evening. And, you know, Lisa, you've been named one of the top 10 emerging women entrepreneurs in Canada. Tell me, first of all, where did this confidence in you come from, the confidence to really step out using your voice as a thought leader? Um, and, and what compelled you to step out in, in this way? Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's a beautiful question. Um, I think the confidence, you know, we talked a little bit about my parents, but I think it started with them. You know, it's interesting, you know, people have a perception of culturally about India and all of these things, but my parents from a very young age gave me this, I don't know how they did it, because I'd like to do it with my kids, but they, um, I really grew up with this feeling, I, I knew what I was good at and wasn't good at, so I wasn't gonna say like, oh, I'm gonna be a WNBA player, because I'm five foot tall, and if you threw a ball <laughs> at me, it would hit me in the head. But I knew, You're a realist. I'm a realist, but I knew that there were certain things, I was very, you know, they, they raised me to be confident, they, you know, confident that I could pursue things and be successful at them. They also raised me very much, um, if you've ever heard the term growth mindset, I don't know that they would ever yes. use that word, but I would yeah. say that is a lot. Like my parents, even when I was in my MBA, I struggled with the finance course because I knew nothing about finance and I had come from a science undergrad and I found it challenging. And my parents, my dad was the first one to say, go get a tutor. We'll pay for a tutor um, because there's nothing wrong with not knowing something. You just have to go figure out how to do it. You know, and that was yeah. very much the way that I was raised, which is it's okay to not know something. You can develop mastery in it if you try and if you learn. And I think that gave me a lot of confidence because when I started this brand, even one of my closest girlfriends was like, are you, have you lost your bananas? Like, you really think <laughs> that you're going to launch a skincare brand that's going to sit beside, you know, Estee Lauder and, you know, have, right. you, have you gone? Like, she was like, have you gone mad? Like, I feel like I need to ask you. <laughs> and... You know, it's a fair that question. That probably motivated you more. It did. I mean, I yeah. had my own insecurities, so it probably touched on them too. But I think there was a part of me that was like, no, if I, you know, if I, I, I know there's going to be bumps on the way and there were tons and there still continue to be. But I know if I, you know, go after it with a mindset of, I don't know everything, but I'm going to learn it as I go. And I'm going to 
tap into the right people and I'm even going to network or I'm going to do what I need to do to learn it, I will get there. Mm. And I yeah, think I that's that. probably the most beautiful gift my parents gave me, which is you're not necessarily born with everything. You have to go learn it. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. I say to my kids, there's a lot of things we don't know until we do. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you have to stay curious. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm speaking with Leslie. Mit- uh, excuse me. I keep saying Leslie, <laughs> who, no who was my uh, uh, guest in the first hour. Lisa, Lisa Mateum, founder of Sahajan. We're going to go into our next break. Stay with us for our watch team of on-air contributors. We'll be right back. Now the women to watch. Military watch. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military and Veteran Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. For this week's Military Watch, I'd like to highlight the importance of creating an inclusive culture for the military community within an organization. Why? Because we know that a diverse, equitable, and inclusive company is a more innovative and successful one. While the military experience is unique and often misunderstood by civilians, It isn't all that hard to bridge the divide with a little bit of time and effort. Building resources to cultivate awareness and understanding of the military community employees is key. At Comcast, we curated an internal toolkit for employees called the Military Community Roadmap to act as a resource for hiring managers, human resource professionals, and colleagues to use as a reference when it comes to understanding military ranks, roles, and characteristics. I encourage all companies to explore a similar toolkit for their employees, as understanding is fundamental to breaking down barriers. Another way to promote an inclusive culture for military employees is by hosting events that foster awareness. Using Zoom or Teams or whatever your organization's preferred platform is these days, consider hosting a speaker who can appeal to a wide employee audience but can share his or her story through a military lens. With only a couple of weeks to go before National Veterans and Military Families Month in November, think about what your organization might be able to do to build a more inclusive culture for military employees. It can be as simple as making sure to recognize service members for their service on Veterans Day. A small gesture of appreciation can have big results in making military employees feel seen and heard. And I thank you for your support of our military community. Now, the Women to Watch, Nonprofit Watch. Good evening, Women to Watch listeners. I'm Dr. Owens, Managing Director of Financial Empowerment at the United Way of Greater Philadelphia and Southern New Jersey. I'm excited to talk a little bit more about a subject that was broached last week when Jeff Brown joined me during the Nonprofit Watch. I'd like to elaborate a little bit more on the importance of nonprofits identifying alternative paths to fundraising and rethinking their strategy on how they raise and spend money. During these challenging times, many corporations and organizations within the nonprofit community have been forced to make some tough decisions, whether that's concerning staff reductions or direct service supports to the community. It goes without saying, many of these organizations do some extraordinary work in transforming and building community. But I want to stress to my nonprofit 
community that this is a time more than ever to invest in advancing your technology and examine how your organization can use its resources to directly impact its community members and being able to clearly articulate that impact. Additionally, you should also rethink the flexibility of work. Many corporations have already began to rethink the office structure. And if the nonprofit sector desires to attract top talent, it will need to consider some of the strategies of our corporate friends. With this said, the nonprofit sector must move to become more flexible, innovative, and nimble in its approaches so it can continue to do the great work it has always done in building lives and transforming communities. And until next time, I'm Dr. Owens, your Nonprofit Watch. Now more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Up next is our Where Are They Now segment, where we're joined by Shalmina Abji, Global Empowerment Speaker. Thank you, Susan, for giving me this opportunity to circle back with you. You know, before I go on to tell you what I have been doing since we last talked, I would like to congratulate you for what you have achieved since we last talked. You had just started out when we talked and you have done so well. You have built so many great partnerships. You are now in New York thinking of going into the third market. The speakers you bring on, the interviews you do, the heart you put into your work is just incredible. And I'm honored to call you my friend and to be associated with you. You know, the more I get to know you, the deeper my respect and admiration grows. So thank you for having me. Thank you for being my friend and thank you for being in my life. And as far as what I'm doing next, Susan, so I am continuing my focus on providing access to education in underprivileged areas, as well as women empowerment. So the two things, let me tell you more on it. Uh, You know, we built a school, we funded a school in 2012 in Tanzania, in an area where there was no access to education. Students used to walk one hours, up to three hours to get to school. And so many, especially young girls, were dropping out because things would happen while they were walking to school and these were not pleasant things. So when we built this school, we had students from seven villages coming to this school. And we were just amazed at how many kids were coming and that there was a zero dropout rate. So when we went to Tanzania in February of this year, before the pandemic hit, we went to visit that school for the first time. And I don't remember the last time I was as emotional as I was when I was visiting that school, just looking at the impact that school was having. And so we decided to continue our philanthropic uh, activities there. We have extended the school. We have built more classrooms. We built a large sanitation room. We installed a large water tank. And, you know, the thing that we did um, this year during the COVID pandemic was we installed solar panels at that school. Susan, these villages had never seen electricity and this school 
is the only place in seven villages that has electricity. And, you know, once we got electricity, we installed a photocopy machine, something they had never seen. And then we took it one step further and we installed computers in those labs. And, you know, um, I have a degree in computer science. I had never seen a computer until I came to the United States. And so for me to be able to install computers in this secondary school, this is high school. We call it secondary school in Tanzania, is such an incredible honor honor and privilege. So I am very focused on ensuring that that school continues to do well. And my next thing that I'm working on um, is really extending my sphere of influence. Susan, when we talked Asked, um, I had mentioned to you that I had left my work at IBM to share my insights with girls and women all over the world so they could accelerate their success. And that speaking took me to many countries. I have spoken to women in Tanzania, in Kenya, in Uganda, in China, in India, and of course here in North America at many conferences, at many corporations. And after a couple years of speaking, I started in 2015, after a couple of years of speaking, I was getting testimonials from women on how my insights have changed their career trajectory. But then after about three, four years, these testimonials got real, they got deep, they started touching their lives, my lives, and I thought, you know, I cannot just keep my insights for the women that get a chance to hear me. I must share them globally. And so I have started writing a book. I want this book to be in the hands of every career woman, especially early in their career. I want this book to be in the hands of every woman graduating from college because just as I was so confused about what does career success mean? How do I go about achieving it? They are all confused and I want to share with them everything I know so they can get started on their career journey, on accelerating their journey because we have a broken pipeline right now. Over 50% of the workforce is women and yet at every level there are less women getting promoted than there are men. And by the time you get to the C-suite, Susan, only one in five people are women. And if you're a woman of color like me, it's one in 25. And I want to do what I can to change those statistics. And I want every woman to have an opportunity to really have the career they're capable of having, because we are so much more capable than what we give ourselves credit for. And how do we apply those capabilities and increase those capabilities to accelerate our career and really take our rightful position at the highest levels in every sector in our world. That's what I'm up to. Thanks so much, Shomina, for the Where Are They Now segment. Stay with us for the second hour of Women to Watch. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children 
who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Welcome back. Thanks so much for being with us this evening. We're going into our second hour, and I'm joined this evening by Lisa Mateum. And Lisa is joining us from Canada. She's the founder of Sahajan, which is an evidence-based natural skincare line. And um, really having a wonderful conversation around what led Lisa to start this company it takes a lot of courage to step into the skincare arena um, and go against some of the giants, um, as she mentioned in, in that first hour. Lisa, I wanted to start the second hour off with asking you about the partnership with Sephora's incubator program. How did you land that partnership? Oh, yes. So uh, it was interesting. So when we when I launched the brand, I I launched it with a focus in Toronto and I remember turning to one of my advisors and saying like should I focus on the US and he said what would that look like and I said I have no idea but it's you know <laughs> I, as I was saying to you it's a, it's a hop skip and a junk from Toronto to the US and it, you know it's obviously the US in so many ways is a trendsetter and so but we said no you know what we're going to kind of maybe make take take some small steps and and make some mistakes or whatever it is learn in Canada and then interestingly a few months into the launch Sephora had launched an accelerator program or an incubator program and it was out of their corporate social responsibility uh, arm and really Sephora you know is this global giant in everything beauty and they wanted to give back and so you know the woman who led the program at the time Corey Conrad was amazing and she you know and don't quote me exactly on my numbers but you know what she identified was that while let's call it 98% of their clientele is female you know 85% plus i think of the brands in Sephora are led by men which is such an interesting stat and yes, so definitely. the question i think that she had was how do we get more female founders into Sephora and how do we incubate more female founded brands? And you know, there's so many questions I'm sure that naturally come out. Are they not there? Are they, do they not have access? Is it, you know, what is it that, you know, when you look at the funnel of, of these be big beauty brands that they're, not only are they led by men, but the men aren't really the primary consumer. So it's an interesting question. And so what she set out to do was to create this incubator program, which was uh, meant to identify, as they called it, very early stage, beauty businesses that they thought had the, uh, I'm stealing their words now, the ability to redesign the future of beauty. And so when they launched it, it was actually launched initially with a focus on the US. And uh, they had put out a press release and a friend of mine saw it and sent it to me. And I sent them a note and said, hey, can I apply? And they wrote me back and said, no. <laughs> and they said, yeah, uh, you know, it, they actually said it's by invitation only. And they didn't write this in the email, but I later found out that it was also only meant for the US. And then a couple of hours later, I get this email that says, actually, you can apply. You have until tomorrow morning to get your application in. And oh, so wow. I did the application. You had to do a really short iPhone video. And I remember I did the application and I was up till maybe 1130 midnight. And I turned to my husband and said, okay, here's my phone. Can you take the video? And he said, I don't think you should take it now. Like you're sending this video to Sephora. 
And so go to sleep, get up in the morning. And I drove to my girlfriend's office and I said, okay, can you take this video? And we did it and I sent it. And, um, and so I was really excited because we were less than six months into a launch. And, wow. you know, I was wow. part of their first their inaugural cohort for this accelerator, which has evolved, they're in year five now, um, which mm. has evolved over over the five years. But it, I, I, it helped in so many ways. But I think, it, I think ultimately, it gave a few things. One was for me personally. We talked a lot about confidence and stuff. It was like a signal to me, and it was like a marker to me that. You know, I had this vision in my head and I believed in Ayurveda and I believed in the wellness world, but you couldn't find a lot of clean brands at Sephora. This is now there's this stamp at Sephora called Clean at Sephora that didn't exist five years ago. And right. so it was a st signal to me and a stamp to me to say, not only do we think you have something, but the, you know, the, one of the biggest beauty retailers in the world thinks you have something. And then mm -hmm. I think it was a signal broadly to say this brand has something. You know, this brand has something and people take notice. And then, right. you know, and then in a, in a much more um, tactical, uh, I don't know what the right way, action-oriented way, the other thing that it gave me, which I am gra so grateful to continue to have till today, was it gave me a network of other female founders. And that has been in so many ways the source of support, advice, everything, because now... You know, as we continue to grow the business, I have people who I can ask questions to. You know, two weeks ago, I was having just a not a great day, and I'm not. I'm a. I'm someone who loves to. You know, who likes to sleep. But I was up at four in the morning because my head was buzzing, and I happened to mention. I happened to, you know, message one of the girls in the group, not expecting her to be up, but with a little note that just said, "Hey, you know, do you have time to chat today?" She wrote me back five minutes later and said, "I'm up. Seems like you're up." <laughs> And a 4, a 4 a.m. meeting sounds good. Yeah. And it's so funny because it's pitch black dark in my house. We have a new puppy. So I was like, I can't wake the kids and I can't wake the puppy. So I crawled down to the basement, you know, flip the lights on. And for an hour, you know, she filled my cup in a way that I don't know that very many people could. And so mm. I... Uh, it, it, the Sephora program has become such a special place in my heart for what it did for the business, but also for what it did for me. You know, we should tell our listeners about the light bulb moment, you know, that you had with your daughter, you know, that really started the whole business and your whole idea. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'd, lo I'd love to tell the story. So, you know, this is going to take you back in time, but I uh, was pregnant with my uh, son. And so I was about, I think I was eight or nine months pregnant and I had come home from work and my daughter had been home and at uh, you know, while she was home, she got into all of my skincare and she had it all over her face, super, super thick, like on her arms and everywhere, you know, the way that <laughs> kids put things on. And I remember looking up to her and so many things going through my head, like, oh my gosh, you're so cute. Oh my gosh. You know, that's probably a million dollars on your face. <laughs> um, but I also remember, I very distinctly remember saying, oh my gosh, we have to get that off your skin. I have no idea what my products are going to do for your young, beautiful skin. And I think for me, you know, moving into motherhood was a time where I started, particularly with her, trying to be more conscious of what I was giving her to eat or what I, you know, what I was exposing her to and the ingredients and the products and all that kind of stuff. And I took her to her room and I said, if you want to play with things, these are the things you should play with. And there were all these little bottles of oils that my parents had given me to use with her. And they were, you know, things my parents would have used on me. They're 
parents probably used on them and they contain these beautiful plant-based oils you know anywhere from coconut oil to almond oil which are you know very familiar um you know but all these ingredients that came from the indian subcontinent that that really derived themselves in ayurveda and it was in that moment that i thought wow if my skincare isn't good enough for her then it's probably not good enough for me but also mm. if i really believed in these ingredients and i trusted them you know why had i walked away from them and there's probably a longer story to that to that to answer that question but you know and that's when i started my journey and that journey you know my parents didn't use the word ayurveda when i was a kid but it was a part of every it was a part of so much of what we did you know my first acne was met with like this little turmeric paste that my dad would make at the table when my stomach was off he would make a tea that had you know coriander seeds and cumin seeds and fennel seeds to help with digestion it was you know it's a very traditional thing in indian households for girls to have their hair oiled um, because oil creates strength and shine and resilience it gives you a you know a healthier scalp it's great for your hair but it's also just really amazing to have somebody oil your hair and brush it out and give you a scalp massage and that's something that you know in indian households across north america probably across the world people are doing and so it really brought me back to that and that was the inspiration mm. lisa tell me what has been the greatest challenge for you in in starting this company oh gosh so many challenges. Sorry, I'm just gonna walk towards my water. I feel a little tickle in my throat. Um, I think, you know, I'm gonna say this more broadly and then I'll get more specific. So I'm just gonna grab a sip of water. Mm. No, go right ahead. Thank you. I think the biggest challenge, I'm gonna use this in a very broad sense, is finding real solid, I'm even gonna say honest and ethical partners. And what I mean by this is, you know, when I left, uh, my corporate career formally, I was working for Johnson & Johnson, right, which is a huge organization. <coughs> Excuse me. So, for example, if I asked a supplier to do something, if I was looking for a supplier, people wanted my business and they treated it with a certain level of dignity and respect. And um, in this business, it was very, and then I went on to be a consultant and also worked for, you know, big pharma, big energy, all of those types of things. And so now all of a sudden I'm starting a business. I no longer have the weight of any of these names behind me. I'm Lisa who, you know, who I even remember when I, we, the way that we made the products is we identified these two Ayurvedic doctors in India. They would consult back to us. I had a newborn at the time. So I would have, the, I would have my little babe in his car seat and meeting with chemists and and we, you know, we're formulating things here. And so we were making them all, how we would say, like at the bench, we were making them, you know, just at the, in little, little batches. And then we needed to find a partner to be able to, to scale up. And I remember, so here's a little tip for you is that a lot of skincare and makeup is actually made in Canada um, from very, very big brands that, that you would know, like the Estee Lauders and the Max and the they're, they're you know, made in Canada. And so there's a lot of manufacturing facilities and I would go visit them and they, most of them wouldn't even meet me because it either wasn't worth their time or it wasn't worth their business. But what became even harder was when I started to work with manufacturers and then my business wasn't a priority. And it wasn't just manufacturers that did that to me. I talked to you earlier about the clinical trial. Like, you know, I'll give you the example of, of my, you know, we, we made this commitment to do this clinical trial 
Uh, I worked with the organization. It was it was actually based in the U.S. and we we pushed forward with it. We were given dates and timelines, and I sent all the product and we did all of that stuff. And then they actually almost went missing on me. And not because the company no longer existed, but because they just didn't care. And I had to keep mm-hmm. following and following. And then I was like, when has it started? Hasn't it started? And I had a very, I, I wanted to be able to use this uh, data for a big retail launch that I was doing. And I kept saying to them, I need it by this date. I need it by this date. And, you know, long story short, they had promised it by a certain date. I kept emailing every week to say, just confirming you're, you know, you're delivering on this date. The date that it's due, I send an email say, and say, okay, I'm looking forward to my results. And I get an out-of-office reply that says we're close for the holidays. Oh, my gosh. And wow. I remember I just wanted to vomit because I thought, how could you? You know, you've been getting my emails, you know, maybe even neurotically. Because I had been through some challenges, I, I knew that I had to be, you know, be ready. And yeah. I just thought, how? And so I called this company, and I must have hit every single number I could have because it was a clinical testing company. And poor guy, you know, picks up an accounting, and, and I just say, I need your help. And, you know, long story short, I did get to some resolution, but I also got to some resolution because I had to get an advisor involved. And he started writing mm-hmm. the emails and he said, and this is who I am and these are who my friends are and this is who this is. And lo and behold, 24 hours later, I have my clinical report. So it meant that they had it. They just couldn't be bothered to send it to me. And because you weren't the big, big name. You know, that's, that's... Yeah, they yeah. just, it just, it was no skin off their back. And I think that yeah. has been the hardest because when you're a startup and you're trying so hard, you're working so hard, there are some things that are out of your control and you do right. need your partners to stand up and sometimes they just don't. And I, I found that yeah. very hard to manage. Yeah. Listen, we're going to take our very last break and we will be back with Lisa Mateum, the founder of Sahajan. Stay with us for our watch team. Now the women to watch, Legal Watch. This is Nicole Hitner at Ballard Spar Law Firm for Legal Watch. The deal market's really heating up and it's looking like it's going to be a busy fourth quarter for deal attorneys across the country. Although the past several years have proven to be a strong seller's market, those same sellers are now confronted with distressed asset sale issues. There are also many business owners who remain unclear about how to sell their business if they took out a PPP loan, which has yet to be forgiven. The SBA recently released some guidance on this because there were so many questions. The bottom line is you can still sell a business, even if there's an outstanding PPP loan. In many cases, the SBA is simply requiring a forgiveness application be submitted and an escrow be established for the outstanding amount, which will be released to the seller after the forgiveness application is processed. If you're contemplating a purchase or sale of a business right now, though, there are other factors to consider in the current climate, including the pandemic's impact on the business performance and the language to including contracts to account for the COVID-19 effect. More than ever before, you need a knowledgeable legal partner to navigate the ever-changing rules and guidance. The attorneys at Ballard Spar are on top of up-to-the-minute developments in all relevant areas. I'm Nicole Hitner at Ballard Spar for your legal watch, and I can help. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consultant Group. I read an article that suggested that recruitment issues will potentially harm IT modernization efforts. Recruiting more women in the technology industry can only help. But, as I've discussed in the past, the participation of women in the technology industry has declined in the past 20 years, and it's the one STEM discipline where the participation of women hasn't increased. 
Did you know that a lack of women in technology can lead to a decrease in performance and profits, creating a missed opportunity for businesses? Greater gender diversity in technology impacts businesses' bottom line, as research from Morgan Stanley indicates. Ensuring that there's a good balance of women leading and working in the workplace just makes for good business. A field experiment published in Management Science found that teams with an equal gender mix had better sales and profits than male-dominated teams. So, why does gender diversity lead to better performance? It's called collective intelligence. Pierre Levy once said that collective intelligence is the capacity of human collectives to engage in intellectual cooperation in order to create, innovate, and invent. So, that should mean that when you add women to a group, the presence of women leads to a higher collective intelligence, which in turn strengthens the group's ability to solve problems, build solutions, and come up with ideas. Higher gender diversity teams not only enjoy better returns, but companies that adopt gender diversity could more likely outperform companies that don't. If we're going to increase the amount of women in the technology industry, we have to start to consider how we change our approach. It will require strategies that appeal to the values and lifestyles of women. I'd love to share your thoughts on this topic in the future, so please email me at mary at pathwayscg.com with your ideas and input. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPA. Thanks for being with us. I'm talking to Lisa Mateum this evening, the founder of Sahajan, a skincare line. Um, one of the things that, you know, I was doing my homework and research on you, Lisa. I read that you co-authored a report on how organizations can change the impact of motherhood on career success. Can you, can you share with us some of those findings? Oh, yes. Um, so, you know, the advancement of women has been my passion I think for my whole life. Um, I was gender equity chair when I was in university. This is this has been something that I spend a lot of my personal passion. Um, and so I have a friend who I came to know through this project. Her name is Reva Seth. She wrote a book called The Mom Shift. And the premise of The Mom Shift was uh, she's a Canadian lawyer and author, and she interviewed 500 women across Canada who had had children. And her goal was to dispel the myth that women were an inhi- uh, sorry, children were an inhibitor inhibitor to career success. And what mm. part of her mission was, she wanted to show that there were many ways that you could do it. So her book is really a book of stories in some ways. So where you have one woman who has children in her late 30s after she's made partner at a law firm, you have another woman who's had children in her early 20s before she goes off and you know works at an agency and so she wants to show these multiple models and then what we did together was we then said well this is great because it's inspiring for women but where do organizations need to come in and and help right because one I think they have a I think we do have a a moral and ethical want you know reason to to even the playing field for women and for mothers but I also think there's so many sound business reasons to do it as well but businesses struggle because it's hard to shift the needle if you're in a big business and also you don't you don't often know what to do 
And so we had through our interviews and, and we had uh, come up with a number of recommendations. And so some that you may hear of less, because I'm sure if you if you follow the movement towards gender equality, you know, there's some that are that are there and we, they talk about leave and they talk about flexibility and they talk about those things. But some of the things that we talk, called out were um, one of the things we talked about a lot actually was relatable role models. And so that sounds like what is that but what we realized is a lot of people a lot of women and a lot of mothers would tell us you know i see cheryl sandberg and she's doing it but that seems so far out of my life right she Mm -hmm. and and i don't describe i mean she's phenomenally successful but you know in her rise she also i think came from an affluent family and she's had nannies and you know she you know, rest in peace for her husband, but she had a supportive and also very successful husband. You know, there's a different construct there. We want to see people like us who are doing it. We want to see, we want to see more people and we want to understand how they're doing it because also how many mothers felt was that, that at some point would there have to be a trade-off? Like if I really wanted to rise to the top, I had to not be a mother or pretend I wasn't a mother or kind of really sacrifice motherhood, which I didn't want to, and then, or do I do this, but then it it limits my career, my career trajectory. And so relatable role models is something that, the reason I bring it up is also something that companies can actually pretty easily start to do because they often have them sitting in their organization, but they aren't showcasing. And so women wanted to know, like one of the, the things that I often tell people is I went to this conference that I was speaking at and pr- before me was this woman who was a senior VP at a very large food organization. And, you know, all the speakers were very inspirational and they were motivational and they were telling their stories and they were these incredible stories. But she got on and she said, this is how I do it. I have, uh, I remember she said, I have a menu and we live that menu for three months of the year and it only changes every quarter. And on Monday we eat salmon and on Tuesday we eat spaghetti and blah, 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 blah. And I have a nanny and she buys for those things so that there's net. And people were writing it down like she was, you know, it was like, you know, like they, they had heard some sort of truth that they had never heard before. And so... I think one of the big things that we recommended was give people relatable role models with with messages that they can actually insert into their lives so that they can manage the balance that they're really struggling with. So that was one of them. Uh, Another one was about, actually it's something I feel very passionately about, is about being what I would, I forget the words that we used in the report, but it's, you know, being true to what the, the role actually is. So sometimes you, in a law firm or in a consulting firm or in a finance organization, companies so much want to be flexible and they want to say, you know, we want to be able to support mothers. And so women who are mothers often felt like they were being sold a false bill of goods, that they were being told they would have flexibility, but actually the client work ruled and the travel ruled. And so it was really about informing people so that they can make their own choices, but also so that they could plan around those choices. Because if you tell someone, yeah, you can work from home 30% of the time, and then they get into the job, and in fact, they can't at all, they feel, you know, not only does it create an inherent sense of stress, but it, you know, they feel like they've been cheated by the organization and that they've been sort of duped in a way. And so, you know, while we had some very high level uh, recommendations in that report, many of those that, you know, you you could read and, you know, you would still find consistently in an HBR report or somewhere, what, what we really wanted to do was give organizations some real, some real 
chewable, actually doable, bite-sized opportunities so that women could stay in the workplace or they could continue to aim and thrive and strive and still be the mothers that they wanted to be. That That's great. And, you know, I, I love everything about what you just said because that's what we try to do with the show here, right, Is is show women like you who others look to as perhaps being um, much smarter or different, or, you know, you're, you're an entrepreneur, you've started this company. Um, but you know, you're living your life as best you can Mm -hmm. and, and juggling a lot. So let me give you an opportunity to share with the listeners how you're doing it, Mm -hmm. right? Especially with the pandemic, you live in Toronto with your husband and your two children, you know, this isn't a very clever question, but what describe a typical day? Mm-hmm. How, how are you doing it? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And I, I almost so this is I'm, I'm like, I pointed out Sheryl Sandberg. And if she's listening, I'm actually an incredible fan. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I, so I, I want to call that out. But what no, is it's it? a great example. Yeah, but it's it a, is. she's a good example. She's a good example. Yeah. Um, but what is a typical day? It's interesting because our, our kids have gone back to school. So in Toronto, oh, we shut down in March. Um, Mm -hmm. And then September, when school started, there was an option to go online or to school, and we made the decision to go to school. Um, And we did that as much for their academic, for us, so it's a very individual decision, and I have had friends who've chosen many different options. Um, For us, we did it partially for their academics, but also for what I would call just their social and mental health. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I have a seven-year-old boy now, and he... I, I took him to Toys R Us uh, to get a, to to pick something out in August because he he had a gift card that he was sitting on and we hadn't got, and he said to me you know mommy I think this is the first time I've been in a store since March and he even went so far as to say he thought it might have been the first time he'd left our neighborhood which wasn't true but it wasn't that far <laughs> off from the truth and at his yeah. age he doesn't have tons of friends, you know, that he's going to, he's not going to pick up the phone and call anybody. And right. particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we weren't going, we weren't going into people's houses. We weren't seeing, you know, it, that's, that's the nature of a pandemic. So every day, so I'll tell you sort of pre and post really quickly, but so before they went to school, it was a, it was like a moving target at the beginning when they were homeschooled, it took me a long time because in March and April, I was really struggling, I think, professionally because I could not figure out how to get my work done, how to focus on them. I had a really hard time focusing even when they were doing other things and I was supposed to be home. So we came up or I came up with sort of a new plan, which was that I would get up. We would all get up in the morning. My husband would be really focused on work, his work. I would be with the kids kind of doing homeschooling till about noon. I answered the occasional email at that point, but I didn't. And it was almost like I was working on Pacific time. And then around 12, 1230, I would get in my car and drive to the office. I work in like a, you know, 12 story office building, um, home to home depot. Uh, but there was nobody here. I would walk in and say to the security guard, who's here? And he'd be like me, you, the cleaning lady, like, you know, wow. and yeah. I would sit yes. in this office by myself and I would work. And once I got into that routine, everything started to feel right because I could do what I felt I needed and what they needed me to do at home. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I could come here and do what I was required to do for work. Also what I wanted to do, because it was a scary time in the pandemic. A lot of our skincare was flowing through retail and retail was closed. Um, And so even just to work through that, even just to have a little break, like there's so much data about how the pandemic, it's obviously affected everybody um, in in awful ways. 
But there's also a lot of interesting data that's coming out about the effect that it's had on women and the effect that it's had on working women because you're, you know, I, I have a, a few girlfriends who actually took leave uh, a couple months into the pandemic because there was no way for them to be at home with their kids because you couldn't bring in help. You couldn't see other kids. You know, you couldn't see other people. Mm-hmm. You didn't want to bring your parents involved because they're at risk. And so um, it, it took us a while to find a rhythm. Now, I felt the downside of our rhythm was that sometimes I wasn't coming home till seven or eight at night. And I felt like I missed the fun stuff at home in the summer. <laughs> but we made it work. And I think, I think really the learning, there's going to be so much learning that comes out of this pandemic. But one of them for me is, and this is goes back to kind of what I said of, of the report and things that we did, is that there is no one model of success. There's no one model of right versus wrong. Um, we're all just doing our very best and we're trying to survive. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, as business owners going through this pandemic, we know that not every business will make it on the other side of this. But also as families, like there's there's just so much, you know, inherent stress that this has put on people and obviously the health stresses and all of those things you know i i would just say it's to anybody who's struggling like know that you're not alone and know that there's not one model but if there's any lesson i've had to learn myself was what is it that i ultimately needed to do to feel good almost at the end of the day so i needed to make sure that my kids were getting their schoolwork done and that they were being supported and don't get me wrong it's not that my husband was with them in the afternoon but my kids also go to a French immersion school and I'm the only one of the two of us that speaks French or somewhat. <laughs> so I needed to be there for that. And then, you know, I also needed to do what I wanted to do at work because I wasn't I wasn't ready to or I wasn't in a place of, of being able to step back from that. Yes. <clears throat> it sounds to me like, you know, again, going back to the very beginning of the show when we were talking about balance and intuition, mm-hmm. right? Just really listening to that inner voice that that always has the right answer about what you know what the next right thing to do is mm-hmm. in in any given moment. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, I, I don't want to end the show without you telling our listeners where can they find your products, <laughs> right? And and what's happening with Sahajin right now? Oh, you know, so thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. So where can you find our products? The easiest way is online. So it's www.sahajin. So S as in Sam. A-H-A-J-A-N, like Nancy.com. But you can pick us up in, you know, also at Credo Beauty, the Detox Market, um, Amazon. Like, there's there's lots of great places to find us. Oh, Amazon, good. Yeah, for folks. For folks who who need their prime, absolutely, we're there. Um, You know, it's been an incredible period post-COVID. I mean, there were moments when I was very nervous, even from the fact of, like, you know, when the shutdown happened, would our warehouse be able to stay open, all of those kinds of things, you know, so it's been very, but I, I'm really excited to say that, you know, the one thing that's people are going more clean, as we talked about, I think people are investing more in their wellness and their self-care. We've seen mm-hmm. some interesting things, like we have, um, we launched right before the shutdown, we launched this beautiful turmeric brightening mask. And I remember feeling sad because I felt like the launch had been kind of blighted or slighted, I don't know what the right word is by the pandemic, because we were doing all this launch work and then everything sort of shut down and all the boxes that we had sent to all these press outlets, you know, were sitting in offices in New York with nobody mm-hmm. opening them. And I just thought, oh, you know, this is, and then we got in Oprah, in the Oprah, the O Magazine newsletter, you know, the wellness editor had put this quote that said, I think she, I forgot how she said it, but her Sunday routine is to do a mask and her favorite thing to do on Sunday is our mask. 
And that was just... A little bright light. A little bright light. And Mm. what I can tell you is there is an Oprah effect. Um, But I also... I'm sure. There is. So I was jumping up and down. But also, I think in this time, people do need to invest in their self-care. And that's what Sahajan gives you. Yeah. Absolutely. Listen, we are out of time, Lisa. I'm so grateful for you to take time out of your busy day with us uh, and share your story and, um, you know, your wonderful company. Thank you very much for having me. I so appreciate it. Now, the Women to Watch, Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Recently on Your Radio Doctor, we discussed breast cancer screening and treatment. We learned Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women, after skin cancer, found in one in eight women. Mammograms can miss cancer up to 20% of the time. So if you have a normal mammogram, but you feel a lump in your breast, under your arm, above or below your collarbone, tell your doctor immediately. The breast includes fatty tissue and milk glands. On mammogram, fatty tissue is black and milk glands and some cancers look white. So dense breasts can make it harder to see a cancer you may need an additional ultrasound or MRI. Review your mammogram report with your doctor. Signs of breast cancer? Swelling of a part or all of your breast, even if no lump is felt? Dimply of the skin, like the skin of an orange. Breast or nipple pain? Nipple discharge? Nipple or skin that is red, dry, flaky, or thickened? And swollen glands or lymph nodes in the armpit, above or below the collarbone? If you have an abnormal mammogram and a biopsy shows cancer, See a breast surgeon and a plastic surgeon to learn options for surgery and reconstruction. Early on, include an oncologist, a cancer specialist. Have testing for estrogen and progesterone receptors, HER2 receptors. You may need genetic testing if you have a strong family history. Depending on results, you may be advised to have chemotherapy before your surgery. And if you have a specific gene marker, you may choose to do more extensive surgery. Like most cancers, the majority of breast cancers are not hereditary, but when you're together for the holidays, update your family history. And if you've had negative BRCA testing more than eight years ago, know that BRCA testing is much more extensive now, and you may need to update your counseling and testing. Divas, promise yourself and your loved ones you'll get a mammogram. If you don't take care of yourself, no one else will. Hi, Sue Rocco here, host of Women to Watch. Are you a fan of the show? If so, be sure to sign up for our podcast at womentowatch.net so you never miss a show and can listen on your own time. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Now, Women on the Fly. Next up is our Women on the Fly segment, and I'm with Lisa Mateum, founder of Sahajan. Lisa, tell me how you start your day. Oh, wow. I start my day in bed. Um, I am... uh, someone who believes in prayer and I'm a practicing Catholic. So I start my day with prayer. I get in bed. I try and get in bed before everybody else does. So I get a little bit of time to myself. I have a nice cup of warm water. Kind of, I set my intention for the day and then the day just gets buzzing. What is your motto for stressful moments? My motto for stressful moments is... Motto. My motto. Sorry. My motto Motto. for... Mantra. I should say mantra. Either one. My mantra for stressful moments is uh, every day in every way, I'm getting better and better. Oh, I love that. What's a book you would recommend? Oh, uh, The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Where are you when typically inspiration strikes? Exercising. A place you've traveled that you want to go back to? 
India, hands down. <laughs> but I would also <laughs> say Paris. I've been watching Emily in Paris on Netflix, and I'm dying to go back. Mm. Mm-hmm. How do you unwind? Uh, TV. <laughs> it's my. <laughs> I'm like a net. I'm the biggest Netflix binge watcher. I watch a lot of TV. What's your definition of feminism today? Oh, that's a great question. My definition of feminism today is is allowing women to be whatever and whomever they want to be. Tell me three words that describe you. Passionate, I hope uh, loving, and I hope humble. Best advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received was something my dad used to say is, Show me who your friends are, and I'll show you who you are. Who is someone who believes in you? My parents. Favorite quote? Favorite quote. Um, I have a few, but there's one from Danielle Laporte that says, be in the energy of that you desire. Oh, I love that. Last question. How do you end your day? I end my day kind of the way that it started. I get into bed, I try and do three things that I'm grateful for, and sometimes, especially during the pandemic, it was hard because we weren't doing anything, so it might be I'm grateful for my oatmeal. Um, (laughs) Three things I'm grateful for, I pray, and then I'm usually really tired and I fall asleep really quick. Sounds great. Thanks so much. That's this week's segment of Women on the Fly. Thank you. Next is our Coach's Corner podcast, which is a shorter version of our weekly show and can be heard wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm BJ Gray with this week's Coach's Corner. Last year, I worked with a group of women lawyers about how to tap into their inner power so they could have more success building business at their law firm. Before you can truly tap into your inner power, you have to learn how to drop your inner critic, which is a habit many successful women have. Dropping something that is so ingrained can be hard, but when you're not reaching your goals, you really have to look at what is holding you back. And I gave these lawyers five questions to ask themselves about their beliefs, and I want to share them with you to help you create the change you seek. The first question is, is it working? Is your belief working for you? Often beliefs are about connection. And in this case, the women lawyers didn't feel they could compete because deals are done on the golf course and men had that advantage but that is just a belief that is holding them back. So then you got to ask yourself, is it helpful? If your beliefs are getting in the way of your work, then you need to decide if the belief is serving you. Beliefs are not permanent. And that brings me to the third question. Is the belief true? True in the sense that it's verifiable, testable, and predictive. Many times we are taught what to believe or somebody else decides what we should believe. And you never go back to challenge that belief and give yourself permission to change it, but you can. So do you need this belief to be true? Sometimes we do need the belief to be true so we can make it through the world. It acts as a placebo. The problem is though, when the belief prevents you from accomplishing your goals. And that brings me to the fifth question. What would change your mind? If you decide that your belief is actually true, then you owe it to yourself to be clear about what would have to happen for you to realize it's not true and be able to change it. All of this doesn't happen in your mind right away. 
the best way is to reflect on your beliefs and use these five questions as a guide to uncover your inner critic. Thanks for listening to this edition of Coach's Corner. Connect with me directly on LinkedIn or at bjgray.com. Until next time, I'm BJ from Coach's Corner. That is all, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Be sure to download the podcast and check out who's coming up on the show next at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Continue to have a great and safe week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.